Heavenly Father, you are the author of our lives. You are the source of the grace that we depend on. Father, on this uh, autumn day, we come before you thanking you for the gifts of creation and the blessings of fellowship together in your Son, Jesus Christ. Today, Father, we will open your word and we will hear Jesus' call to follow him. We pray, O Lord, that that would not be an occasional occupation of ours, but would be a 24-7 preoccupation where we would continually seek to grow in Jesus, to follow more closely in his steps, to walk as he walked, as 1 John tells us. Father, we pray this morning that as we worship you, that the, the songs that we sing and every emotion of the hearts, Father, would be right in your sight. And Father, that uh, as, we, as we pray together as the people of God in this place, that we would hear the prayers that are lifted up, and Father, also listen when you ask us to be the answer to those prayers. Father, may we reach out with your mercy and grace to a hurting world. And may we in all things celebrate your love in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and amen. You'd all join in the prayer for guidance, please. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with our voice what you say to us this day. Amen. The scripture today, Luke nine fifty-six to 62, can be found on page 70 in your pew Bibles. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And it came to pass, as, as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but first let me go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you for that reading. And uh, I uh, have to tell you, this this, uh, passage of Scripture I think for a lot of people is a difficult passage. One person says, hey, I'll go with you anywhere. And the other one says, hey, I can't quite do it right now. And both kind of get uh, tough responses from Jesus. So uh, this is a challenging passage of Scripture for us because we certainly uh, uh, make things a lot easier for ourselves than Jesus seemed to make it for these uh, these uh, men who... Uh, uh, responded to is called to, to discipleship. We are in Luke chapter 9, and we begin uh, at verse uh, 57. I begin at verse 57, and it says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, has no place to lay his head. 
In other words, Jesus says, if you come with me, it's going to be tough. I sometimes have someone express to me their desire to learn how to be a beekeeper. And I always ask them the same question first. How do you feel about being stung? Because you are going to get stung. And it's amazing how many people have told me they want to be beekeepers who with the thought of being stung drives them away. You can see their enthusiasm wane. Because I was telling them that beekeeping isn't just about putting honey in a jar and enjoying the sweet rewards. It's about paying the price to get that honey. And perhaps Jesus knew that this man, when he said, wherever you go, didn't fully realize what wherever meant. For Jesus' disciples, it would not mean nights in a luxury hotel or flying first class. It would mean watching their bleeding, suffering, dying master and friend hanging on a cross. It would mean hiding out in fear and uncertainty while his body lay in the grave. It would mean persecution and exclusion. It was not a sort of victory that Jesus was handing them, but a life of service and sacrifice, and yes, occasionally getting stung. And then Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now Jesus' statement to this man would have been shocking to any witnesses who heard him say it. In the Old Testament scriptures and in the Jewish traditions and culture, honoring your parents by caring for them into their old age, by honoring them in their death, was a preeminent requirement of the law. We do not know if this man's request meant that his father had just died or if he was asking Jesus for permission to go and remain with his father until his father died and then to bury him, perhaps many years down the road. What we do know is that Jesus, in no uncertain terms, wanted this man and every witness to his words to know that the kingdom of God was to be first in our lives and no other concerns must delay or diminish our dedication to that kingdom. And still another man said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. You notice the negotiations going on here. Don't we negotiate with Jesus a lot of times? Uh, Lord, uh, I, I have this call uh, to ministry, to, be, to become a pastor. I, I hear your call loudly. But Lord, first let me take care of X, Y, or Z. I've heard that from folks. I've heard people say, I feel like God wants me to do this, but I, I don't feel I'm quite ready for it. Well, if you're not ready for it, God won't be calling you to it. So Jesus responds to this man. Let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replies, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You cannot serve in the kingdom of God if you put your hand to the plow and then you're looking back all the time. This person simply asked to go and to do what seemed right and proper, to go back to their family, to maybe explain their decision to follow Jesus, say goodbye to them. But again, Jesus clearly conveys to this man, just as he had to the others, that the kingdom of God must be our first and foremost priority. You can't follow him if you don't keep your eyes on the prize of the kingdom of God. The reference to the ineffectiveness of a man plowing a field while looking back over his shoulder may also be a reminder of the disaster that befell Lot's wife 
Remember, as they were fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, as they were being destroyed, as they, uh, destruction was being rained down from heaven, she liked life in Sodom. She knew she had to leave it in order to survive. But she had been told, as you flee, do not look back. Your life is ahead of you. There's no reason to look back. But she can't help it. She has to look back at that old life and, and that life that she enjoyed And when she does, she's turned into a pillar of salt. You can't look back. you got to go ahead. So you you say you want to follow me, but you also want to go back to your family. You have to make a decision here. Now, given the rigid parameters of of, uh, Jesus' call to discipleship, why would anyone want to follow Jesus? As a general rule, we follow leaders who give us something to believe in. Leaders who will not abandon us. Leaders who will go to the cross for us. This was the power of Jesus' leadership, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the gift of his Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life. All gave his followers something to believe in and take hope in. Jesus gave people a God they could trust, and he knew that those who truly understood the meaning of his invitation would follow him, even if it meant taking up a cross each and every day, each and every day for the rest of their lives. On one occasion in the Gospel of John, Jesus shared truths that were so difficult to accept that many of his followers turned away and abandoned him. I always envision these people who have gathered in the field to hear the gracious words of their master, and suddenly he begins to talk about about himself, and he talks about death, and he talks about about uh, eating of his flesh and drinking his blood, and they're appalled by this, and they don't understand it, and they begin to 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 just leave bit by bit. And then it becomes a mass exodus, and Jesus is watching this whole thing, and he turns around, and there are his 12 disciples. And one of the more poignant moments in all of Scripture, Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, are you going to leave me too? In other words, am I going to be here standing all by myself? You know, the prophet without a congregation? And then Peter Peter responds with this simple statement of faith. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You know, they had left their homes. They had left everything for Jesus. They had no place to go. They were the people who, when he said, come and follow me, they didn't say, well, first let me do this. First let me go back. You notice in the call stories of the disciples, they leave their nets and they go. Peter says, who else do we have to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter's response reminds us if we're going to follow someone, follow the one who offers you what no one else can offer you. Jesus offers life and no one else can make that offer. So many people uh, today have the appearance of life, but they're dead on the inside. We're good at covering it up. We're good at having that appearance of life. There are many celebrities. Many times we read in the news about somebody and we thought, we thought they were so happy. We thought they were rich and wealthy and happy and they had, had a beautiful uh, spouse. But all of a sudden we read this that they have been miserable and depressed for years. And their life is a mess. How can that be? They have no joy in life, no hope in life, no one in life in whom they can believe. But Peter, a common fisherman with a tendency to put his foot in his mouth, gets it right this time. He had decided to follow Jesus because Jesus alone had the words of life. 
from today's scripture text in Luke 9, it is obvious, if you're going to believe in and follow Jesus, that there are some things that will help you along the way, some things you need to remember. Number one, you must count first the cost of following him. When the man in today's scripture tells Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, I'm stunned by Jesus' response. I'm a pastor who wants our church to go. If someone comes to me and says, I'm thinking about joining your church, it's not likely that I'm going to say, well, being a member of our church may mean you will suffer. Our pews are hard, our projectors are dim, our cooks are lousy, our sermons are boring, our singing is mediocre, sorry, and our children, our children are rude and crude with a bad attitude. You sure you want to join this church? That's not how I'm going to respond. I'm going to fill out the forms. We're going to start filling them out immediately so they don't get away. I'm not going to say anything that might discourage a new member from joining, but in several places in the gospel gels, Jesus tells a prospective follower that following him is not a stroll in the park, but it is an endeavor filled with risk. Before you accept my invitation, he says, you'd better count the cost. Second, you cannot effectively follow Jesus from a distance. Lydia and I were recently at the Holocaust Museum just the other day in Washington. And if you go to a museum like the Holocaust Museum, it will tear at your heart and demand at times that you stand back and stare and absorb just how cruel and heartless humanity can be. And it will be hard to stay in touch with your traveling companions because there were places in that museum where I wanted to just sit and stare at the exhibits for hours But Lydia would move on ahead, and after just a few minutes, I'd have to move on with her. There were other places where she planted herself while I zoomed on past. We had to constantly look around to make sure we weren't getting separated and lost from each other. Yes, it's hard to follow Jesus from a distance. You lose sight of him. You get lost in the crowds of life. You get separated. You can't wander off or take a vacation from Jesus and be his follower. Following Jesus is a, con- is a contact sport. You have to be in constant contact with him daily. And then third, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. The Old Testament reminds us that geographically, the children of Israel were, were surrounded by cultures that often worshipped entirely different gods and had a dramatically different set of cultural values. It was easy for God's people to surrender to the temptation to fit in with their neighbors. In our crowded, chaotic world, it is important for the followers of Jesus to stay close to Jesus through God's word and Holy Spirit and not lose sight of him. Peter once was walking on water in the midst of a stormy sea when he became afraid and he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink and then he cried out to Jesus to save him. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 verse 2 perhaps was thinking of this experience of Peter when he was sinking in that water, when he encourages us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. When we are sinking, when life is threatening us all around, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus from beginning to end. Peter himself would write years later in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we must stay close to Jesus as we navigate the crowded paths of our lives, walking in his steps. And another apostle, John, reminds us in 1 John 2, 6, that whoever claims to abide in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. You can't follow Jesus from a distance. When we're in a crowd, Jesus must be our vision and our focus. We must walk behind him, matching him step for step, staying close to him, fixing 
our eyes on him alone. And then the last thing was we must avoid, if we are to be followers of Jesus, is the human tendency to live in auto-response mode. Now, I thought about this because I was working on my computer and I got an automatic reply from somebody that they were on vacation, an auto-response. And then I thought, I wonder if this is a psychological term used also, and believe it or not, and psychologically, they talk about automatic responses. Because what I was thinking about is that these, these three men, in responding to Jesus, seem to be responding in automatic mode, that auto-response in them. One of them says, instinctively perhaps, well, before I say yes to him, I need to have a little time to, to think, so I'll do what I automatically do all the time when I'm confronted with a decision. I will say something that will delay the decision. And then when I... Have you ever done that? You put someone off? And maybe you do it automatically, and maybe later on thinking about it, you think, well, that make it, didn't make any sense in that particular situation. It was just an automatic response. Automatic responses are actually quite helpful in our daily lives. We develop habits and routines that help us to move through life uh, more efficiently and without the stress of having to make an individual deeply thought-out decision on everything that comes along. So most of us can be half asleep and still efficiently brush our teeth or comb our hair or comb our teeth and brush our hair. we, We can put on our clothes. We don't sit there thinking through how we do these things. We just do them. And how often do you immediately respond uh, with the word fine when someone says, how are you doing? Now, you may be doing the opposite of fine, but you're still going to say fine because it's an automatic response that saves you time and and saves you from, from conversation because you can move on quickly. I know that when my wife asks me to do something, my automatic response is to say, just a minute. Just a minute. And sometimes it's uh, like, I've got something I'm doing now, but as soon as I'm done, I can do it. Now, I've got to tell you that what I'm really saying to her is if you're lucky, I'll do it later because right now I'm busy counting the freckles on the back of my hand while watching a football game. It's an automatic response that I know must aggravate her. The problem with all these auto-responses is that that they employ the tongue before they engage the brain. Did you see the article in the paper yesterday about the famous watering can in downtown Stanton? Years ago, Lydia and I visited Stanton. We were vacationing up in this area, and we we went into Stanton. And I remember I was continually getting lost. You know, if you've lived here all your life, you probably think Stanton is an easy place to get around in, but occasionally the streets don't make any sense, and I didn't know where I was. And the only thing that saved me was that watering can. I love the watering can because every time I go past it, I go, whoops, we're going in the wrong direction. We should be going back. I've seen that can before. It oriented me to Stanton. But the article was talking about how when it was first put out, there were some pretty violent reactions to it. People uh, suggesting it be melted down, at least moved someplace else, not as, as dominant, not as visible. It was too big for the space, they said. They had all kinds of criticisms. But today people think it's kind of cool and unique. You see, it's, it's amazing how thinking about something for a while changes everything. But our automatic responses, our automatic responses to Jesus, 
that automatic response mode. We need to get out of it when we're considering God's call, when he's calling us to something. Lydia's automatic response the first time I told her we were going to get married someday was to laugh at me. Well, she's not laughing now. When I was called by God to be a pastor, my initial response to everyone who suggested God was calling me to preach was to respond to them, no, God hasn't called me to be a preacher or a pastor. He's called me to serve as a layperson. I did that for years, over and over. But one day I stopped, I took a breath before answering, and I prayed. And immediately I realized I had been employing an automatic response to the question of a call to pastoring, and I had neglected to ask the creator of my life why he had created me. What did you create me for? What do you want for my, my life? And as soon as I stopped, and I took a breath, and I prayed, I knew Now, when we're responding to the call of Jesus Christ, we have to turn that auto-response off. Because when we are called by Jesus Christ, we need to surrender to the proddings of the Holy Spirit who's trying to move us, to speak to us. We need to listen, to really listen to the gospel message. The persons in today's message from Luke 9 all seem to be on auto-response. When Jesus says, come and follow me, they, like many of us, had the habit of either making excuses when asked to do something, or in the case of one of the men, automatically, without appreciating what he was getting into, automatically making the bold claim that he would follow Jesus anywhere without considering the cost. I've seen those folks. I've had these experiences with people who say, yeah, I'll do that. You know, they didn't think it through. They didn't count the cost. Yeah, I'll do that. And within days, they've disappeared. They've given up. They're discouraged because they didn't fully count the cost of what they were agreeing to. You see, when someone asks you if God is calling you to to teach or even start a Sunday school class or help with the fall festival or be a scripture reader on Sunday or go on a mission trip or share the gospel with your neighbor or even become a pastor, do you respond automatically with a thoughtless no? Or do you stop, pray, and let God lead you in your response? What Jesus is saying to the three potential followers in today's scripture text is that they need to move past their initial automatic responses to his invitation, consider the true cost and benefit of following him. They need to understand that following him isn't a part-time endeavor. It isn't number three on a to-do list. It's a 24-7 lifetime commitment that will take us through dark valleys and mountaintop experiences. It's about putting God above everything else, including the things that society says are most important. They need to set aside their prejudices and fears and hear, really hear what Jesus is asking them to do. It's amazing as we go into the Gospels, they will bluntly tell us of the times when people rejected God's grace-filled invitation to follow Jesus. The Gospels just don't tell us the positive responses. They tell us the negative ones too. There was the rich young ruler who giving up his wealth as Jesus told him he was going to have to do because it was, it was the one thing in his life that he idolized above God. You need to sacrifice that money in order to follow me. It says he went away sorrowful because he couldn't sacrifice it. There was a man who built more and more barns to hold his crops and then he died materially wealthy but bankrupt in the kingdom of God. There were the religious leaders in Jerusalem who conspired against Jesus to have him killed because of their fear of Rome. It's better for one man to perish than for the whole nation to perish, they said. And there were all those who were almost persuaded, 
almost followers of Jesus, but who could not quite get past the wall of their automatic responses, their prejudices and fears, closing their ears to Jesus when they should have listened with their entire being. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul has the opportunity to share the gospel with a king named Agrippa. Agrippa's response to Paul's message was, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. Someone later commented on King Agrippa's words, he who is almost persuaded is almost saved, but to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. And then 1,700 years later, John Wesley would preach a sermon entitled The Almost Christian, in which he said that all the good works in the world did not make one a Christian, even if you've worn out your pew by sitting in it every Sunday morning. According to Wesley, being a Christian means that the love of God rules over your life and flows from you in a river of mercy into the lives of others. That being a Christian meant possessing a faith in Christ that brings forth good works from a transformed heart. And that being a Christian meant having an assuredness that you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you heard the call of Jesus to take up your cross daily and every day that follows until he returns in glory? Jesus calls you, calls us this morning to come and follow him and begin the adventure of a new life in Christ, not as almost Christians, but as Christians walking in the steps of Jesus. Let us pray. Holy Father, your word can be tough, and your invitation To follow Jesus, Lord, is not what we always think it is. It isn't about church membership. It isn't about just the good times and the fellowship. Certainly there is a joy, there is a peace that passes understanding in our following of Jesus. Certainly there are times, Father, when we are filled to overflowing with your peace. Certainly there are times, Father, when we know that there could have been nothing else in our life but to follow you. But, Father, there are also challenges along the way. And, Father, to follow Jesus is to go with him wherever he leads. We pray this day that we would make that commitment or renew that commitment to follow him and that he would be our compass, our guide, our leader as we walk through life. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord who gave himself for us on that cross. And amen.